Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Success Theater edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon. I have Jordan Weissman and Anna Shemansky here. Hello, guys. Hello. Hey, but everyone. Most excitingly, I have Rob Cox here. Rob, I can't believe we're coming up to 200 episodes of this show, and this is the first time you've come on. No, that's it's not, the second. That's it's not the true. second. It's the second. Even I remember and that. And the last <laughs> time we spoke some, about General Electric. No way. Yes. Wait, really? Okay, so. <laughs> Rob Cox knows Slate Money better than I do, so maybe Rob will take over as of I'm so memorable. next week. Um, last time we t- we talked about General Electric, which means I guess this time we have to, for continuity's sake, talk about General Electric. Yeah, let's do it. Let's. T- there was a great long piece in the Wall Street Journal, which we will link to in the show notes, which is just vicious in the way that it treats. Um, the former CEO of General Electric, Jeff Immel. We're going to talk about that. We are going to talk about a, a subject dear to Kathy O'Neill's heart. Kathy, we love you. Uh, which is algorithms underwriting financial decisions. Oh, yeah, it's happening in China. Or maybe it's not happening in China. And there is also going to be a Sleep Plus segment about Kylie Jenner. Because... That is just too wonky to fit into the into the main thrust of Slate Money. But if you really want to wonk out about the financial implications of Kylie Jenner tweets, there's going to be a couple of minutes of that in Slate Plus. Um, but Rob, you are your day job is running something called Breaking Views, yes. which is a subsidiary of Thomson Reuters and does lots of analysis of deals and stuff like that that's right and then you have a sort of passion which is not exactly the same thing uh yeah uh you're talking about guns or or i should say gun violence prevention so yeah i mean as you know felix um and for the benefit of your listeners i was in i'm I'm a native of new newtown connecticut and so when the shooting happened at sandy hook elementary school five years ago i i became um well-versed on the the issue of gun violence and gun violence prevention and the National Rifle Association and all the things that we're now talking about uh, over the past uh, week and a half since the shooting at Parkland. And and so one of the things that we have started talking about, I think probably weirdly more now than in any of the previous shootings that I can remember, is this intersection of guns and finance. And I guess maybe because it happened around the same time that Remington, one of the big gun makers, filed for bankruptcy. Um, but you have columns about what shareholders can do. Um, Andrew Ross Sorkin came out with a column talking about what banks can do. And so in amidst all of this sort of national grief and 
incomprehension about what's going on with with gun violence and mass shootings is now the beginnings of a actual plan, right? I mean, it seems I mean, there have been so many false starts on the front of gun violence prevention that one would be uh, who has to be very wary about calling this the change. I mean, certainly after 20 children, six year olds were gunned down in their classroom with six of their teachers. Everyone thought, oh, my God, this is the moment. But now you have a, a couple things happening. There's there's much the, the widespread awareness of of that consumers can actually play a role. And we've seen that this week with the NRA boycott. You've got a whole bunch of companies, Alamo, Best Western, Enterprise, First National Bank of Omaha, that have all severed their ties with the National Rifle Association as a result of of customers calling and complaining. And that, and what, what real effect, if any, is that going to have on the NRA? It just puts pressure on the NRA. That's simply what, what kind it does. of pressure? Well, it puts these are these are the kinds of uh, goodies that they give out to their uh, members. I was a member of the NRA for for a couple of years um, just to see what those goodies were. And it was it, it's a pretty extraordinary membership. It's almost as good as AARP or uh, or <laughs> so, something like so that. So the idea is that if you don't get lovely credit cards from First National Bank of Omaha and you don't get cheaper car rental and stuff like that, then eventually your incentive to be a member declines and the membership will I mean, decline. That's that's part of the theory. The other part of it is denying uh, forms of, of financial backing to the company. So there are a lot of, of big funds like BlackRock, uh, Vanguard, which are actually BlackRock is the largest investor in publicly traded uh, gun companies. I mean, it's the you largest know. investor in <laughs> yeah. publicly traded of everything. everything. That's really. true. Yeah, but, yeah. but, but, you know, and it is largely through index funds. Um, but, you know, you're starting to see an awareness of that. Uh, Andrew's column in The New York Times pointed out, you know, the role of banks and payments, uh, payment companies in facilitating transactions. And and it's really just starting to to, to create a sort of p- a pincer movement, if you will. So you have on the one hand, you know, consumers, you have investors potentially playing a role and saying, look, this is bad for business, bad reputational risk for us to be involved with companies that produce. And to be specific, this isn't about just gun manufacturers. This is about manufacturers of guns like the class of weapons that have that have really become the the chosen weapon for mass shooters. So that's the AR-15. Uh, and, and so, you know, Smith & Wesson is a good example. It's, it's manufactured by American Outdoor Brands, this is w- of which Larry Fink's BlackRock is the largest shareholder. And to be clear, what you're asking BlackRock to do is not necessarily to throw their entire indexing philosophy out of the window and divest themselves from these companies, so much as it's to say, Hey guys, we're one of your biggest shareholders. Um, we want you to take a meeting with us, and what we want you to do is stop manufacturing the AR-15 right. for civilian well, use and various stuff like that. Well, as you as you may recall, last month uh, Larry Fink put out this letter to CEOs. We Much talked fanfare. about it on this you, show. you talked about it in the show. Um, some people thought it was sanctimonious. Um, I tend to think it would be if he weren't to to act upon it. Um, I mean, he said that companies must benefit all their stakeholders including the communities in which they operate. Um, and they must they must create a benefit, a net benefit to society. Um, so, you know, he's now in a position as the largest, as one of the largest shareholders of at least three of those companies, Vista, American Outdoor Brands, and Sturm Ruger, to, to play a role, to call the company's CEOs, to call the directors, to tell them that they need to to reconsider their uh, their investments in a certain class of firearms that have now become the chosen um, weapon for mass shooters in this country. So I guess my question here is, isn't this sort of like playing whack-a-mole, like getting, you know, one gun company to stop making its version of the AR-15, stop making its assault rifle? You know, isn't someone going to manufacture that? someone else going to manufacture that and sell it in the United States? I mean, that's that's if you don't outlaw them. But that's yeah, the, I mean, so that's, when I say it's a pincer movement, then there's one side, there's the indec- there's the investors, there are consumers yeah. playing a role on the financial side of things. But then on the other side, of course, you have this movement, you have this never again movement. You see these young people. And by the way, like all civil rights movements don't happen without young people getting really pissed off and angry. Let's just look back in history. We now have young, angry uh young people uh, who are making an effort and and possibly are going to move the needle, I'm not saying in the next six to nine months, but possibly after the next election cycle, to actually ban the AR-15 as it had been from ni- to 1994 to 2004. And I, I do find the political developments of the past week encouraging. I just, I guess I find myself both a little bit skeptical and even the tiniest bit queasy about 
some of the, shall we say, private sector solutions that are being discussed. Uh, you know, Andrew Ross Sorkin's article, he's saying banks should essentially cut off gun dealers from or, or gun shops from the financial system or from the credit card system. Well, he's saying if they if, yeah. if they don't, if yeah. they continue to sell AR-15s would be the, I mean, that's, I'm not, again, I'm not here to yeah. defend Andrew's piece, um, but there are precedents. So as, as I think the article pointed out, Apple Pay, Square, possibly PayPal have all sort of decided not to finance that kind of a transaction. And, and well, also it's not just that. If you look at entire industries like marijuana, it, they are basically they can't get banked because the banks won't deal with. Yes. Well, that's yeah, that's, that's you know. actual federally banned. So. No, 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 it's not. No, giving banking services to a marijuana company is not federally banned. That is a no, choice but the product, which the banks I'm saying the are making. Is federally right, banned. but the banks are making the choice not to provide those banking services, and that's a unilateral choice which is up to them. Just like they can, they could make that choice for guns as well. I guess. I th- I'm wondering really how much effect the private sector can have because, okay, even if in a world that would be fantastic where we could get these types of weapons outlawed, that still doesn't account for the fact that the vast majority of gun violence and gun death in this country is with handguns. And if you want to start attacking handguns, which I think we should, I mean, look, I, I, I come from rural Michigan from like gun country. I despise guns. I would like to outlaw all of them. But I'm not sure how you're how someone like BlackRock is going to be able to approach a, a company and say, most of your products, you really need to stop selling. I mean, the real question is all of this. Nothing changes in America without cultural change. So if people start to adopt a different perspective on the culture of firearms, on the, on the culture of violence, um, then we will eventually have change, whether it's banning handguns. Like, I can't imagine that in, in my lifetime, um, although I'm with you. I don't see the need for a handgun. I'm a shotgun owner and a hunter. Um, I certainly don't see it as a self-defense mechanism. Um, God forbid I'd have to. But, uh, you know, I do think all of these things are about cultural change. So if you can start to change the way people view guns, it's not sort of sexy at all. And, it's and not, I it's, do think that the influence of Wall Street here is it, it could be pervasive and powerful. I mean, I, I think it's we shouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I totally agree that it would be better to ban more guns than fewer, but that's no reason not to start with the AR-15 and then move on from there. And when you have a general consensus on Wall Street among shareholders and banks that certain activities are beyond the pale, and we can start with something we can all agree is beyond the pale, which is AR-15s and selling AR-15s. And then Wall Street basically says, you know what, we just don't want anything to do with that. We're going to phone up the companies we're shareholders in and tell them not to sell them. We're going to refuse to provide payment services to people who sell them, all of that kind of stuff. Um, Then that is a move in the right direction. It's an encouraging move, and it's an entirely legal move, which they can if they want to do and it would be very hard for some like libertarian upstart to come in and try and circumvent that and even if they did they probably wouldn't have anything like the kind of market well, it's, share it's that the current that guys do i mean one way to think of it is mar- marriage the marriage equality movement uh Wall Street firms were well ahead of Congress and many state legislatures in adopting a a, a friendly approach and embrace an embracing approach towards marriage uh, equality. So, I mean, again, they can lead on the cultural front and then Congress, should it ever I act, dis- can follow. I agree. I, yeah, I, Which one? You want to go first and then I'll go. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. I, well, I think it's important to remember that. Whenever you have a massive shooting, what usually happens to the share price of all of the gun companies? I mean, they go up. It didn't happen this time. Didn't happen this time. Which, and that's obviously a good thing. But no, well, I don't think it is. It, well, see, well it didn't happen this time because there's no Democrat in office, so people right, there, the, there was no is, fear that Obama was yeah. going to come and get your guns. And this is what is so important is that unfortunately, I think a lot of the power of the NRA is not really in how much money they give to candidates. It's the fact that they have created this idea that people can like structure an entire identity around being gun enthusiasts and being the type of like kind of tribe that holds guns. And so they've created a this like fake reality where any type of attempt on gun control is an attack on these people. Yeah. And I don't quite know how ha- having 
Wall Street put pressure to ban. I mean, I, I would love them to do that, but I, I, that doesn't fix this larger problem. Right. But is, got, it, I, is it not at least a positive step? I, 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 actually don't, do I, I don't know that it is. I don't. So you have to remember is that the hardcore gun rights movement is closely, closely, closely associated with the sort of white reactionary politics that makes up the the core of Donald Trump's political strength. I mean, like, and you can people have done research on this. It's you know they're the kind of people who worried about worry about globalists coming and you know trying to build like the NAFTA super highway, or the kind of people who are buying you know six guns in the wake of a school shooting, um, and having Wall Street say we're going to make companies stop manufacturing the AR-15 isn't going to calm those people down. It's, no, no, it's, it's going it's no, but it's going to raise, raise the cost of capital for the business. Maybe. I'm just saying if you're talking about cultural change being the the thing we have to work towards in the end, I think in the end, you know, Wall Street may accidentally end up you know, I haven't made up my, like I, I'm saying this. So I'm you're saying it's like the Brexit conundrum where yeah, if, if JP Morgan or, or Lloyd Blankfein from Goldman Sachs came yeah. out and said, no, remain, it would actually do more harm than remain. I, I, and like, I, I, I say, the NRA and gun manufacturers like having an enemy. Yeah. That they helps need the another. They do. Right. And, and I'm OK with being the enemy of the NRA. And I think that if you want federal change, if you want gun laws, and ultimately that's the, the sort of brass ring here. That comes from the public writ large. And if the public writ large, including some of your biggest donors on Wall Street, have all basically come around to this and are showing it with their actions, that's going to affect the government. Are the NRA NRA always going to be opposed? Yes, they're always going to be opposed. Are they going to be even angrier, perhaps? I dare say they will. But I am perfectly happy to antagonize them if if we wind up moving in the right direction. They're small minority they yeah. are they are let's say they're five million they say they're five million members there are maybe seven to nine million people who own uh ar-15s actually no there are seven to nine million ar-15s the number of people who own many of, of those guns is is probably you know a couple of million so you're still talking about less than 10 million people in a country of 330 yeah. million people they just happen to be very vocal have a lot of money and did anyone notice that they're armed yeah <laughs> because I'll tell you what, a lot of a lot of executives that I've talked to, and and Sorkin throw, p- pointed this out in his piece this week in the New York Times, and a lot of 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 politicians I speak to who talk at least on background when they're talking to you about going up against the NRA, it does it is not lost upon them that many of their followers show up at rallies with um with open carry. Yeah, one of the things which I would like to mention, just because we're trying to keep this a little bit financial, is um. Remington was owned by private equity. They loaded it up with loads of debt. It wound up going bankrupt in the classic private equity story. It's being handed over basically to its bondholders, including JP Morgan Asset Management. And Rob, you got a very interesting quote from JP Morgan where they basically said, uh, we don't want to own this shit. We're just gonna we just like wind up owning it as part of a debt for equity swap. And this this is going to be temporary. We're going to unload it somehow. Yeah. But that's the perfect opportunity in that brief period of time when you actually do own a company. That's the perfect opportunity to say, well, before I sell it off to someone else, I'm just going to stop making the AR-15. Well, th- there is a there is a possibility. So J.P. Morgan has backed it. We said that this client money, it's temporary. We you know we didn't intend to own this, um, but there are going to be a number of other bondholders who become significant shareholders of Remington, and they're going to be they're going to be faced with this issue. Do you do do you try to say okay the AR-15 line? By the way, people aren't buying them. That's why Remington went bust. It's why all, it's all the stocks are down. There are th- yeah. this this there are enough of them out there. People have stockpiled enough of the AR. 15s, you know, when you think about it. So that there may be just a good business reason. And in fact, I would predict that someone will come out and say, we're no longer going to manufacture these weapons because they're no longer profitable. Demand has slumped. Watch that happen. But there's also an opportunity as the new shareholders come in, set up a board and decide, look, we can do things like let's stop. Let's not make this a political organization. Let's focus on hunting. Let's focus on sports shooting. Um, Let's look at gun safety technology, which is, you know, an area that's been completely underinvested in um, by the gun makers because the NRA has told them don't do that. Um, There are a number of things they can do as good from a good governance perspective perspective that also will will make the company you know bring it back in some ways to its roots and well, possibly is, and yep. possibly just create a little bit of blue water as you say between the gun manufacturers on the one hand and the NRA on the other because there's no 
particular reason why the gun manufacturers need to buy into this extremist agenda. Yeah. Well, the one thing I will say is that um, in the late 90s, the NRA almost put Smith & Wesson out of business. Yeah with a boycott when they attempted to work with the Clinton government to create this smart gun, um, th- this idea that only the person who owns the gun can use it. And this shows you that, well, first of all, it shows you that there is a little bit of room, but it also shows you how powerful the NRA is. And it's important to remember part of the reason that gun manufacturers need to, in some sense, create artificial demand is because it's not actually a great business. Guns last a really long time. There's and also the how, number of households in the United States that own guns has dropped uh, quite a bit. It's just the people who do own guns now own way more of them. And the reason they own more of them is because the gun manufacturers working with the NRA have created this idea that you need essentially different guns for different things. Concealed carry is frankly just like a marketing ploy masquerading as a political movement. It's a way to sell these teeny tiny guns that were really hard to sell before because they look ridiculous. But now it becomes like, oh, this is my political right. So I want to believe that Wall Street and credit card companies can work to potentially create more movement between the NRA and gun manufacturers. But right now, I have a hard time believing that's going to happen when that's how gunning manufacturers are surviving. This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Let's face it, sometimes multitasking can be overwhelming. Like when your favorite podcast is playing and the person next to you is talking and your car fan is blasting, all while you're trying to find the perfect parking spot. But then again, sometimes multitasking is easy, like quoting with Progressive Insurance. They do the hard work of comparing rates so you can find a great rate that works for you, even if it's not with them. Give their nifty comparison tool a try and you might just find getting the rate and coverage you deserve is easy. All you need to do is visit Progressive's website to get a quote with all the coverages you want, like comprehensive and collision coverage or personal injury protection. Then you'll see Progressive's direct rate and their tool will provide options from other companies all lined up and ready to compare. So it's simple to choose the rate and coverages you like. Press play on comparing auto rates. Quote at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Okay, let's talk about General Electric. I'm old enough to remember... uh, few months ago when uber was looking for a new ceo um they they uh, what there was this wonderful headline like where, where they said uber's looking for a new look uber's looking for a woman to be its new ceo and they've managed to bring it down to three men um but the, <laughs> <laughs> and they and they hi- hired a man in the end but the front runner for most of that time was this guy called jeff immelt who um Rob, can you explain to me, like, number one, who is Jeff Immelt? And number two, why did anyone think he would be a good CEO of Uber? Uh, well, I call him Two Jets. <laughs> Jeff Two Jets Immelt, because he was famously uh, had a, a second jet follow the, the jet that he was flying for, with, for GE for, for quite some time. Um, it was a bit of an embarrassment. This all came out after he'd left as GE's chairman and chief executive uh, last year. Uh, uh, Jeff Emil has run the had run the company from really he started I think on the September 11th 2001 pretty uh, serendipitous timing um, and he he led General Electric through you know a boom a continuing boom in financial services the financial crunch of 2008 when the company you know really um, the the financial arm almost brought the company uh, down so to be clear he totally bought into that huge financial boom of the mid 2000s in like 2004, 5, 6, when GE Capital became, when General Electric became this massive shadow bank. And then GE Capital basically grew to dwarf everything else in GE. And then it all came down, crashing down during the financial crisis. That wasn't entirely Jack Welch. That was in a large part, Jeff Immelt. Yeah, I mean, he t- he picked the ball up from Jack Welch and he ran with it. Uh, I think he was a Dartmouth football player or something, <laughs> wasn't he? But so he, uh, you know, the, by the time we hit the financial crisis, GE had something like a $500 billion balance sheet. It, it classified as one of the biggest financial institutions in the country. And as a result of the 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 balance sheet, the, the banking business, they they 
they really did face a run on on the company. Now, because they had all these great world class industrial businesses, they they didn't need a, a you know a bailout. Except they did get a sort of prevent private money like like Warren Buffett. So fast forward after the financial crisis, he did a great job of cutting back, hacking back uh, GE Capital. They sold chunks of it. Uh, they got out of a ton of businesses. The problem is the industrial businesses that really have been, you know, the, these. this is Thomas Edison's OG business, Power, for instance. Um, you know, they did a deal where they bought Alstom in France. They, uh, they basically put forward numbers that they couldn't reach, $2 a share of earnings uh, for this year. Uh, a, a number of promises they've made and decisions that they made that in, in many ways have left the company uh, in, in a difficult position. And, and, the, and the promises and decisions were all based weirdly on some level because of this kind of article of faith that ML seemed to have, which was – I can get rid of GE Capital, which has always been like the cash cow and the and the secret source, which makes GE as profitable and as huge as it is, and still be just as big and just as profitable as I ever was. And no, you can't. But because he refused to come out and admit that he couldn't have his cake and eat it, you can't. You can't get rid of GE Capital and still be the massive world-beating company that you were before. He winds up creating a bunch of unreachable goals and then what happens is that his underlings faced with the this set of unreachable goals there's this culture in GE where they can't say I'm sorry that's completely insane there's no way I can do that so what they wind up doing instead is very crazy deals and discounting and financial shenanigans and whatnot to try and make it look as though they can meet meet these goals when what they should have done is just say no you're crazy no well because this is a very common type of manager that I think you see in many industries where they are supremely confident and they claim that they like feedback, but their idea of feedback is like having a meeting where they tell you for an hour why two plus two equals five. And if you have the audacity to tell them that that's not true, they will then proceed to spend another hour just explaining to you why you're too stupid to understand. And that happens over and over again. So then the people around them just it becomes so much easier to simply massage the numbers because that just makes your life so much easier. And it's very clear that that's kind of what happened here. It was both because, yes, they were doing aggressive discounting to try to meet these sales targets, but it's also because they were engaging in some creative accounting. We don't quite know how creative with this use of like contract assets where you're essentially booking revenues that not only have you not received the cash, you might never receive the cash because it's all based on all of these estimates. And so this is important because it it's not only shows how the company itself was kind of falling apart in order to try to meet this reality that didn't exist. It's also why for the, in the financial community, they didn't really expect that GE was this bad. They didn't quite know how bad their liquidity situation actually was, which is partly why I think you're also seeing such a just dramatic shift in the price of the stock. Well, which, is, the bonds. which is and the yep. other thing is the bonds are trading as as sort of triple B plus or something like GE, that. GE, just to put this in context, was always like this rock solid blue chip triple A, like this is safer than the US government kind of thing, and now it's not. So, I have a question. Um so it seems like the lesson we're getting is that you can't stop being a bank and expect to be as profitable as a bank. And if you try, you're going to end up with a bunch of low-level fraud happening. Um, but does that mean, now that all this is sort of coming to light, does that mean GE is actually in any kind of trouble long-term? Or is it just sort of a dog of a stock for the time being, and eventually I, things will go back to normal? I mean, my the there's a very good reason to believe that GE won't exist in anything like its current form for much longer. It's kind of always been this bizarre anachronism as the conglomerates of the 1970s all got broken up. GE never did. And, and in fact, it was yeah. bigger. And, and what we haven't also talked about yet is Immelt's bet on energy. Yeah. And oil. Well, that, that's a huge, yes. I mean, that, and that's so much of the story. Like yeah. a lot, I mean, that's what kind of strikes me as odd about the story is like, 
yeah, you made a bad bet on oil. A lot of people made bad bets on oil in the last few years. Like people are still, the oil economy and the energy economy is in this period of flux that nobody has fully understood in the past half decade. You know, it seems like if you screwed up on that, well, a lot of people did, but I don't well, know. Well, so power was that, you know, they made the big bet with Alstom. They had these these unreachable targets, which again, people people didn't seem inside the company to push back on, mm-hmm. um, that they could sell this many more, uh, you know, turbines, yeah. uh, gas turbines. Now, so you have a c- cyclical problem, which is that, you know, there's a decline in the purchases of those or orders of those, but you also have a sort of secular question about whether people need as many gas turbines as they used to, given that you have solar and wind, where GE also, I think, is like number two with Vestas. Yeah, and they're huge in nuclear, and they, they, yeah, can, no, they should they, be able to... They've really... So much of their business are these turbines. That, that I mean, it's the turbines, CT scans, yeah. and uh, jet engines. Yeah, well, I mean, is, see, the, yeah. the one that's... I, I don't think that they're... There's a. Pro- I think GE is going to break up. I mean, there'll be parts of it. There'll be GE Power, whatever, the, which was the original one that was in the Dow, whatever, a hundred years ago. the The question that right now going around with GE as an investment uh, is 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 whether they need to raise equity. So this is the big question: Do they have enough? So when you look at those bonds trading at triple B plus or whatever it is, and you're you're going out to customers, airlines, or whoever, and saying, "We'll we'll service you for thirty, forty years." That means you've got to have a sort of you've got to have a take a 30 year view about the, the, the credit worthiness of General Electric. There is a real question mark. And in fact, Jamie Miller, the CFO this week, um, was was asked about this at a, at a conference where she said, no, we haven't discussed raising equity. Um, it's not a plan. Now, of course, the fact that you've had to come out and tell people this investors that means investors are worried and and they may need to raise equity before they can even do a breakup. Because again, if you break up a company and you have, I don't know, five different businesses, three of which are undercapitalized, you've got a problem. And, and to be clear, the reason they need to raise equity is because they spent $30 billion doing stock buybacks, buybacks which yep. if they hadn't done that, they would be in a much, much stronger. But, and they're still paying a dividend. So if you really need to raise equity, it's kind of <laughs> yeah. odd. I mean, it's a little like the banking industry, to your point, Jordan, like when you need to, you know, Marshall Capital will then stop paying a dividend, stop buying back stock. your damn profits. Yeah. Right. Um, so if GE were to break up, you have GE Power, right? Then you have essentially a, a medical tech company, which should mm-hmm. be profitable. I mean, if you can't make prop money selling C, like MRI machines, what the hell's wrong with you? Uh, and like, then what? I, like, do, well, the aircraft business is aircraft, it, you know, it's yeah. a real world leader. Okay. Uh, the, the the aircraft engines. Uh, you also have uh, certainly you still have a a balance sheet issue, sort of a financing business, although you can probably carve that out and and, and keep them with the separate individual businesses. Then you have a, a GE Baker Hughes or Baker Hughes, comma, a GE company, which is the oil and gas business, which is which is already publicly traded. And, you know, as, as, as I, that was pretty obvious to me when they did that deal, when they took GE oil and gas carved it out and merged it into a public company and took a stake in that new public company, that's sort of your blueprint for breakup of General Electric. Yeah. And, and maybe and, this goes back yeah. to also what we were saying at the beginning about whether this is an Immelt problem, whether this is a Welch problem. and it, it, you, it, Or a board problem. Well, yes. Yeah, well. So but the, I'm, I'm just wondering if the part of GE's problem is that they are this old-fashioned conglomerate of so many different things, and this raises the question of whether that type of business of doing so many different things can still work. But we're we're like in the the age of neo conglomerates now, right? Well, well, I feel Alphabet, Amazon, like I mean Amazon is nothing but if not a conglomerate now. I mean uh, Berkshire Hathaway is I mean well, it's it's, yeah. it's a conglomerate slash private business, equity like whatever you want to call Honeywell, it. But, Danaher, yeah. there's a whole bunch of other yeah. Sort of industrial yeah. conglomerates as it were that or uh, United Technologies. Right, but they're which still are, far more focused. Then, I mean, GE is because, I mean, it became so huge in the 80s and 90s. And it's still what we saw with that issue with the um, the amount of money that they now still owe because of the insurance industry that I mean, they still have this kind of albatross around them. And I have this feeling that the way you really win in if you're like if you take over as the CEO of a conglomerate with a whole bunch of random moving parts, is you do the Jeff Bucus thing and you just sell it off piece by piece until there's nothing left and you and and it turns out that the whole is worth a whole bunch more the you know, the sum of the parts is worth a whole bunch more than the whole and this is is of course 
I would say, what, 80% of the business of breaking views, right, is doing like weird sum of the parts <laughs> we calculations. Well, Meg Whitman's another example, you know, having come into Hewlett Packard and now broken it up into a few businesses. And, and actually, they were all, they're all performing better. And, and part of that is, you know, in a smaller company, it's, first of all, to your point, it's easier to manage, right? You can manage it better. You have uh, incentives aligned. Um, there's, it's just harder to hide. You know, it's harder to hide bad ideas, lazy people, um, unprofitable businesses, and assets that aren't working. Brilliant. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. It's real cash that never expires or loses value. Apply for Apple Card in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Daily cash is available via Apple Cash Card issued by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC, or as a statement credit. Terms and more at applecard.com. Okay, Anna. <laughs> Anna found this amazing story this week from China. Shocker that yes. Anna's been <laughs> looking at like business stories in China. It's so unlike you, Anna. What has happened with Alibaba's lending operations or or aspirations in the lending business? So in the discussions around the potential IPO of Ant Financial, which is the financial affiliate of Alibaba, there has been a discussion of the credit scoring that is used at Ant Financial. And it is what is we refer to as social credit scoring. And this is part of a kind of Chinese plan to, to allow private companies to use different means to um, measure the credit worthiness of its of its people outside of just kind of the normal, are you paying your bills on time? And this can include things such as you know, what are you buying? How often are you buying? Also, how active are you on this payment platform? And the other concern is that this is going to be expanded to include what you're posting on social networks, who your friends are, what are their scores? Basically, if you are Alibaba, you have orders of magnitude, more information about your customers than any bank does. You know how they behave on a minute-to-minute basis on their phones, and they're all just on their phones all of the time. And if you have that much data on your customers, it kind of stands to reason that you might be able to underwrite them a little bit more in a more granular fashion than if the only thing you know is have they paid their electricity bill last month. Right. But having the payment like mechanism be the same as the person who is giving a score that will then enable someone to get credit to spend more on that payment mechanism is clearly a conflict of interest. So the news is that this isn't going to happen? No, it's just that. So a few companies, including Tencent and Alibaba, were given licenses to start kind of trying this by the Chinese government. At the same time, that the Chinese government is working on this much larger plan of having a social score for all of its citizens that will it will use to incentivize and de-incentivize behavior. This is a, another part of actually a like, very disturbing part of the story. But they pushed back on Tencent being able to roll out a nationwide kind of use of this social scoring. However, they're not doing it because, I mean, I would imagine, they're not doing it because they really care about privacy. They're doing it because they can kind of see that this is being used to market sometimes dodgy financial products. And this is part of a larger Chinese kind of pullback on credit in the Chinese financial system. What I kind of like about this story is that on the one hand, you have these Chinese tech firms that are going ahead and doing the things we've all had nightmares about in the United States. Like people, when there were rumors that maybe Facebook was trying to come up with a way to use your your social network or your social uh, circle to come up with a credit score, people freaked, you know? Um, and that's just basically what was maybe going to roll out here. And now even China, of all places, is like, 
And there's some downsides to this. Like, well, it's no, sort but, of like, but, it's like, oh, we could say, because I mean, the dodgy financial products thing, right? Like, that is one of the concerns that people have about that kind of uh, te- credit targeting in the United States, that you're basically going to get the equivalent of internet payday lenders and whatnot going after poor people or uh, for-profit colleges. And that even in China, where they are they are trying to construct the panopticon with every with whatever little bit of technological help they can find. They're like, this might have some downsides. I it's think like that's... that Black Mirror episode. Yeah. You ever see that one where everybody looks at each other and like, and if you smile after you get your coffee, the guy gives you a, a rating and right, vice versa. And then the rating oh, falls oh, apart. Oh, and oh. it's, that's her, that, it, it, that, I don't want to spoil her, but it's, <laughs> it's a, you know, her, her, her social rating, um, it becomes ruinous for her. Oh yeah. I, I mean, if, if you're talking about the actual, the government's social score, yes, absolutely. Well, no, but, but even right, if it's but, Private. Like there was yeah. a Dave Vegas no- novel about yeah. that as well, and and this this kind of dystopian fantasy of but couldn't it be a better scoring. credit score than FICO or Experian but, or but someone else? I really... wonder though, because I mean, if you look at what was potentially moving this, it was like, did you buy diapers? Oh, well, then you must have children and be responsible, so your score goes up. But, did you buy scuba diving equipment? Somehow that's your score goes up. But if well, you no, buy that's that's the algorithm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know, but I mean, that's the algorithmic thing, right? Like if you do it on a machine learning basis. And you you don't try to build in rules about did you buy diapers? You just set like a machine learning AI on this massive data set and say find correlations here between behavior and propensity to repay. Right. But then the- then like there will be correlations which we can't even imagine, and they probably will be more accurate than whatever like big, dumb FICO algorithm currently exists. Right. But I highly doubt those correlations would show that the more payment activity you have on Alipay makes you better able to pay back loans. But that is clearly something that has worked into their algorithm. Yeah. yeah. There was also it, it wasn't just machine learning. It's, I mean, like what there were I maybe in the article that you shared with us, Anna, or maybe in another one, but where some of the spokespeople for these companies were like, yeah, you know, like trustworthy people are going to be friends with other good trustworthy people. And, you know, if and bad people are going to be friends with bad people. And it's very much like guilt by association, mm-hmm. which I mean, maybe that does just come out in machine learning. But it, it's the sort of thing that ethically, at least in the United States, we we try to build our credit laws to to prevent <laughs> to prevent that sort of judging. So it's it's still no, weird I, and frightening. I think, and, it's, I think it's entirely possible to see a world where a machine learning algorithm would wind up effectively redlining yeah. um, yes. populations in a very sort of unethical way if it had any ethics, which of course it doesn't because it's just an but AI. It, it's funny, you can apply this to other things. So going back to the gun issue a bit, you look at background checks. The background check system is a disaster. It doesn't It doesn't really work. It doesn't have enough inputs into it. I mean, one could make the case that if you included parts, things from people's social graph, it would have, for instance, this Parkland shooter, you would have seen the things that this person had had been posting that would would have warned us of, uh, that he was a danger. Now, again, yeah, I mean, we're like, this minority is a, report. But I mean, that, but, but I mean, take this to its it's, you know, play it out. I mean, there are many different <laughs> applications that one could have for using all this information. And, and, and that is what the Chinese government is also currently thinking of. I, I, I thought so. Yeah. yeah that I mean, I don't know what the you know, how many Chinese people own guns, but I'm quite sure. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm thinking extrapolate to the U.S. I'm thinking Amazon or whoever would have some of this AT&T, you know, anyone who has uh, the, the, this kind of vast trove of information about what we do, what we purchase, where we go. You know, I, I guess another way to kind of um, think about what China's doing is that no one is studying harder how to use this stuff probably than the Communist Party, right? Mm-hmm. Like no one is, no government is thinking about these issues of tech privacy and tracking and, and big data more deeply than they are. So if they see something and they think, oh, we can use this, we should probably be terrified. And at the same time, if they look at something and say, oh, this is probably a bad idea for society if we allow it, we should also probably right. be terrified. But they're not. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true. <laughs> we should just be terrified in general. Yeah, but like <laughs> either way, if it really gets their attention, there's probably something to be worried about because whatever they are going to do with it is going is I mean, because no one is is you know, thinking about the implications harder than they are. Right. I would just say that they haven't stopped this entirely. No, no, just, no, no. Yeah, they just kind of stopped the expansion of one part of it. While they are currently working on 
their own. <laughs> so I, I just want to point out that this is, I think, not going to be just a one-time story. I think this is something that moving forward is going to be something that is going to be discussed, not in the just in the Chinese context, but potentially in many, many places. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. People, we have reached that point of the show. It's the numbers round. Rob Cox, I know you brought a number. I did bring a number, and and I still have guns on my mind. Okay. Um, And so my number is $229 That's a large number. What's what is it? It is uh, according to the Giffords Law Center. It is the negative economic hit that the United United States economy takes every year because of gun violence, and that includes that's seven hundred dollars uh, per person per year, uh, and basically it includes direct costs. You know things like medical care, um, buying coffins, uh, police, courts, incarceration, um, but the bigger one is indirect costs. So that what you know. I guess we would call the negative externalities of our gun culture. Uh, my number is actually related to the Slate Plus segment, weirdly, um, peripherally. My number is 637,790,892, um, which is a dollar amount which I guess you could call it, you know, somewhere north of $600 million, and is the amount of money that Evan Spiegel was paid in 2017. Um, This is the guy who already owns $2 billion worth of Snap stock. It's not like he really needs that kind of, like, incentive to come to work in the morning, but he got it, and he got paid. The, The board of Snap gave him this mother of all stock grants and paid him six hundred and thirty. dollars eight million dollars last year um for i don't know what it was a success fee for going public <laughs> no i'm really? not kidding it, it was it really was and yeah. so like so because, you know, i mean now, now I, we all finding down we all we all thought that like banks were overpaid at six percent for their ipo fee just imagine how yeah you know whatever go get yours evan like <laughs> this whole capitalism's broken might as well <laughs> Well, like, we should all, Jordan shareholders should fight against it. <laughs> like, whatever. Like, for some reason, I just find him to be less of a malign. Like, he's not going to do anything totally crazy with that money that I have to worry about. This is, whatever. Screw really? it. Really? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Oh, I think he will. But, maybe. okay. What's your know. number? Um, he's not going to go Peter Thiel with it. Or maybe he will. Maybe I, maybe I shouldn't say They, it. they both live in L.A. now. That's so. true. Mm-hmm. Peter yeah. Thiel, he had to get – he left the echo chamber politics of Silicon Valley for – Los Angeles? <laughs> like, what? I was so. Um, my number is uh, 0.6, and it's actually a little bit related to the uh, GE story. Um, 0.6 percentage points. That's how much growth the recovery of oil prices added to U.S. GDP last year. Um, that we had in total, we had two, the economy grew by 2.5%. So 0.6 is a lot. You know, <laughs> that's like what? One fifth about, you know, roughly one fifth of growth came from oil. Um, and in the like two years before that, uh, the crash of oil prices actually, you know, knocked off about a half a percentage point, a full percentage point per year. At least that's according to some estimates from UBS, an economist there named Rob Martin. Greg Ipp at the Wall Street Journal wrote about it. Um, what I think this tells us is that so much of the economic story of the last three years has just been about oil prices and the fact that a lot of U.S. and industrial investment now rises and falls with the price of crude because so much of it, so much of the change is happening in the oil patches. It's happening with rigs and and, and trucks and things like that. And so, you know, it, it makes a little bit of a mockery when people are talking about, oh, how is the Trump economy doing or how is the Obama economy doing? Because it's a lot of it's just been how is the Eagle Ford shale uh, <laughs> formation doing? This is actually also really important in the high yield bond space in the U.S. Yeah, hugely because, important. Yeah, it's almost most high yield bond issuers are energy producers. So and that is an area that has you know taken on a significant amount of more debt. So if you're, if you're looking at potential weaknesses in the U.S., that is one thing to look at if we were to see a decline. 
Anna. Uh, so my number is $735 million. That's just a little bit more than Evan Spiegel's 2017 Just a little pay. bit, yeah. <laughs> so supposedly that is how much money Venezuela raised in the first day of their um, Petro presale. Their, their token, their ICO, the Petro. Yes, it's... <sighs> And the the pre-sale. do you believe this by the way the seven hundred oh no of course not you you don't believe any number that comes out of Venezuela but <laughs> I just everything about it was insane even after they had already started the presale they hadn't agreed which blockchain the tokens would even be on like it was like one was saying it was going to be on the Ethereum the other one was saying it was going to be on this like um, NEM so it was everything about it was just ridiculous I think now today you have Maduro coming out and in like telling Venezuelan retailers that they have to start accepting this. It's it's insane. <laughs> Who is like, where are they getting programming talent in Venezuela? Like, like, you, you really don't need programming tel- talent to come up with an ICO. You can, you can, can just copy it? and paste it from anywhere on the internet. Yeah, they have can talked really? about building their own blockchain. I think that is highly unlikely. Felix, why haven't we done this yet? I, like, we've, we've talked about it so many times. I, I, I feel, I feel, like, slate, the, I feel the, like Joe Weisenthal came out with the stalwart bucks like years four, ago, but he was ahead of... Look, ago. but you know why that was a bad idea? Because it was early. <laughs> if stalwart bucks <laughs> came out now, it would be a great idea. And we can be, you know, the... We, we can be the... What was it? The company that Jet bought that it was essentially pets.com we we can be that version anyway yes, we'll be the, the slate money petro yeah yes anyway okay so uh i think that's it for us this week unless you're gonna hang around for the amazing um kylie jenner segment which is going to be awesome um thank you for listening to slate money many 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 thanks to rob cox for coming on for the second time you are thank now you. officially a regular. Thank you very um, much. And now we're just going to have to come, you know, get you in every month. Um, keep the emails coming, slatemoney at slate.com. Listen to I Have to Ask, which is another amazing Slate podcast hosted by Isaac Chodner and comes out on Thursdays where he'll talk one-on-one with, like, awesome, interesting people and or Katie Royfe. Um The producer for Slate Money is Dan Schrader and we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.